The scripture says that the cunning serpent seeks out Eve in the garden, and we get our first scriptural conversation that happens. The serpent says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent argues with the woman and says, surely you will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, something really interesting happens here in the first dialogue. We see almost immediately, within the first three chapters, that God's perfect world is tainted by our mishandling and our misunderstanding. You see, if you go back to chapter 2, after empowering Adam with responsibility and creativity, God says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And yet Eve responds to the serpent that the fruit must not be eaten or even touched, which God actually doesn't say. Perversion of the order of goodness in the garden happens very, very early in the story. Even before the moment that the fruit was eaten, sin has entered the story. The fruit is appealing to the eyes, and it seems like it be good, could be good for sustenance. And with the hope of attaining greater wisdom, she takes and eats and gives some to Adam. Their eyes are opened, and they recognize that they're naked, and they begin to feel shame, and they sew fig leaves together, uh, together to cover themselves, and they look for a spot in the garden to hide from God. And in the cool of the days, the scripture says, God is walking in the garden and calls out to his loved creation, saying, where are you? Adam, figuring God would be mad, responds, I was naked, so I hid myself. And God asks who told him this and questions whether he ate of the fruit that he was commanded not to. And in this moment, we see the classic human tendency to begin to scapegoat. Adam blames both God and the woman, saying, well, the woman you gave me. And the woman blames the serpent, saying that she was deceived. Clearly, nobody is ready to take responsibility. And so God speaks some incredibly sobering realities in that moment. First to the serpent, says you will be cursed. You are going to be the lowest of the creation. There will be enmity between you and humanity. Your head will be bruised and you will only be able to strike the heel. And then to the woman, God says pain will be multiplied in your childbirth and the desires you have will be different than that of your husband and yet he will still be authoritative. And to Adam, he says, your life will be spent toiling the soil to bring forth the sustenance for which you depend. It will not be easy, and it will require all of your effort. And the very dust with which you work will become your physical reality in death. God makes a set of clothes out of animal skins and recognizes that they are no longer able to live in the garden in the way that it was intended. And so they move east of the garden, and a cherubim with a flaming sword is set to protect the entrance so that no one can get back in. That is Genesis 3, 24 verses. Now, before we really look at this, there's something that we must do, I think, uh, to recognize that this can be read in a couple of different ways, okay? The first way is the literal reading. 
meaning the 24 verses of Genesis chapter 3 are a historical recording of a significant situation that happened in a place called the Garden of Eden. This reading would, although not with great detail, detail, give us the first biblical interaction we see with a deceiving presence in Scripture. It introduces us to the moment that sin enters the story and hits, hints at a widening chasm between humanity and God. And it illustrates some of the pain that will be felt in the human experience. You could also read it a different way, the way of the ancient, which is the way that we've been talking about for the last three and four weeks. This way employs the literary tools that we've discussed earlier in the series. In the reading frames, Genesis 3 is an analogous story of the world that we find ourselves in. A created and good world where order and rhythm can be seen but is too often disrupted through selfishness and disobedience. It's a picture of exile, of living as created beings in the very image of God in a place and a time and a situation that was not part of the original intention. Today is not about dismantling either of these views. Many brilliant men and women stand on either side of this uh, interpretation, lobbing theological truth bombs at the other. And obviously, we have not come to an agreement. I don't think it's that helpful to pick a side today, so that's not what we're going to do. What is important, I believe, is to look at Genesis 3 and see what it tells us about God and what it tells us about ourselves. And so I want to offer three ideas. First is this. Genesis 3 begs far more questions than it answers. Whether you read it literally or as an analogy, any reading you give it, it does not adequately answer all of the questions that we have spent thousands of pages trying to discuss. Schroer says this, consider the possibility that while Genesis 3 is a great text to spark questions, it isn't trying to answer a good number of those questions. It is not trying to determine how sin entered the world or where death came from or why people sin. Genesis 3 is not a laboratory experiment where we get conclusive results about some shocking alteration to our human DNA. If we have sane and simple expectations for the story, we will be much more equipped to read what it says rather than what we think it means. See, in the aftermath of the Bab Babylonian exile in 539 BC, the Israelites were prompted to write down their history in an effort to solidify their national identity as the people of God. There is a reason Genesis 3 is one of the things that they decided to record. Its aim is to document the reality that the people of Israel are God's chosen people and it illuminates how they are to understand their relationship with God and their relationship in the creation. So let us not come to the text with the unfair expectations that it will tell us why bad things happen to good people. Let us not expect to turn to the first few pages of the Bible to find an encyclopedia-type work explaining why there is evil in the world. It's a story of people in right relationship with Yahweh, choosing that which was outside of the original intention and in the repercussions which follow. In that way, it's a story about Israel just as much as it's a story about us. You see, we get into trouble when Genesis 1 through 3 is read as a life's handbook. Genesis is not ab about explaining how and why things are the way they are. It's about painting a picture of what things are actually like right now. 
In this way, the garden is not just an account of something that happened a long time ago. It's a story of something that is happening all around us every day. I mean, you look at the rest of the Old Testament, and it's pretty clear to see this. Israel is created by God at the Exodus through this cosmic battle where gods are defeated and the Red Sea is divided, and the Israel, Israelites walk through to the other side, sounding covenantally like we talked about last week, that which was divided, then God and the Israelites would walk through, signifying this covenant. And so the chaos in the world begins to come towards order. The Israelites are given Canaan to inhabit a lush, and land, a lush land flowing with milk and honey where God will dwell with his people in harmony, this obviously being reminiscent of the garden. And they remain in the land as long as they obey the Mosaic law. And yet they persist in a pattern of disobedience and because they find themselves exiled. You look at your own life, your own story. We are creatively and lovingly and intentionally made by God. And we have been blessed by and invited into relationship with the divine, those around in the creation in which we live. Yet something is wrong. Something is amiss. The reality of pain and hurt and disobedience seems to lurk around every corner in our lives, almost as if it's unavoidable at times. And it feels like we are caught within its grips. We know there is a place, a life that could be lived that feels more right, but we can't seem to get there on our own. The garden is not their story. The garden is our story. It's not just a picture of the Israelites' reality. It's a picture of our reality. And we read through this lens, it becomes far more than just a simple history lesson. The second the fall is not the point of Genesis 3. Have you ever believed something that just didn't quite feel right? Something that didn't add up? Maybe it was something that you were taught at an early age, or maybe everyone around you believed this thing to be true, or maybe you wanted to believe it, or it was safe to believe it, or it was exciting to believe it, or comforting, or maybe it justified you somehow to believe this thing to be true. This was my life from 1999 to 2010. It was in these years that cycling was one of my favorite sports. And if you followed cycling, which I know not many people do, but if you followed cycling, or I would say were just an American, then you were likely a fan of Lance Armstrong. Is this a name that we're all familiar with, right? He was an arrogant and brash Texan one of the strongest American cyclists, but could never quite break through on the international scene. And then diagnosed with cancer in the mid-90s, his career was seemingly over, but he makes this incredible comeback in 1999 and wins one of the greatest stage races in cycling, the Tour de France, right? And he goes on then to win seven in a row, unprecedented, never been done. And he captivates the hearts of an entire country, it was the picture of the perfect comeback. Never give up. Never count yourself out. If you work hard enough, you can overcome anything. He starts an incredible foundation. We all buy yellow silicone bracelets for the first time and wear them around. And everybody looks at this person as a hero. 
kind of the ideal of what it means to be somebody that puts in effort and hard work and you can overcome whatever you set your mind to. And interestingly, all around the world of cycling during these years, the top athletes, almost every single one of them, is failing drug tests, getting caught of using performance-enhancing drugs, being suspended from the sport, and yet Lance, totally clean, right? Vehemently denies any type of performance-enhancing drug throughout this entire period of his life. And in fact, the most tested athlete in the history of the sport never tripped a test, never cheated, because he would never do that. I can remember watching the 2003 tour. This is, uh, this is his fifth, I believe, going for his fifth in a row, which would have tied the record. Lance seems beatable for maybe the first time ever, right? He's only up by seven seconds, which in the world of cycling is barely anything. He'd already had that one time where he rides off of the uh, course and through the field and then jumps back on the course. I'm the only one that remembers this, but I uh, vividly remember this. And it's in the last day of the mountains in the Pyrenees. He's leading by uh, seven seconds over Jan Ulrich. And this is when the fan's plastic bag hooks on his handlebars and he falls in the middle of the course. Check this clip out at some point. It's pretty remarkable. Jan speeds ahead. <clears throat> the whole peloton goes ahead and he's way in the back. And it's at this point that Lance's bid to win the fifth in a row is over. I mean, there's nothing you can do. You're only ahead by seven seconds. He's a mountain guy. This is the last stage in the mountains. If he can't make it up here, then uh, it, his tour is going to be over. He won't win the fifth one. And yet, he somehow gets back on his bike, catches up to the peloton, catches up to Jan Ulrich, then speeds ahead and gains 45 seconds at the end of the stage. From a cycling perspective, it was a truly superhuman event. I wanted to believe that he was honest. I think we all wanted to believe that Lance was doing it the right way. But something didn't quite add up. If you knew cycling and you watched that 2003 uh, tour, you kind of took a step back and you said, man, that seems like that shouldn't have happened. But Lance did it and he did it honestly. It didn't quite make sense that he could accomplish what we were watching, beating everyone else without the advantage of PEDs. Now, I'm sorry, but there's going to be a spoiler alert in this message. Something was wrong, right? He actually did cheat all along the way. Every single tour, he cheated. He used the drugs. It was a massive cover-up for seven, eight, nine years. I mean, it, uh, there's multiple documentaries about it. The dude cheated and lied about it for uh, uh, over a decade. Every tour, every win, he cheated. And as much as we were told something was true, it just never really felt right. The idea of original sin has also been one of these things for me. It's never fully added up, nor does it seem to be helpful, really, when we think about the garden as our story. You see, the fall has become a theological linchpin for Protestant belief. It pinpoints the moment that Adam's teeth sank into the fruit as the moment that our collective nature changed. 
and according to predominant theology, it was this singular act that poisoned all of humanity with the disease of sin. You, me, us, everyone, because he ate the fruit, is sinful at the very heart of who we are. And in the eyes of the holy, in the eyes of the pure, we are detestable by our very nature. Our very beings are imputed with sin. The Westminster Larger Catechism says this, Humanity is made opposition until all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually. The Lutheran Book of Concord describes original sin as this, the entire absence of all good, and then describes us as a deep, wicked, horrible, fathomless, inscrutable, and unspeakable corruption of the entire nature and all its powers. Those are pretty strong assertions, right? These are pretty strong, especially considering the phrase original sin is not a biblical term. That God says nothing about Adam's disobedience and Eve's deception as changing the nature of their, of their offspring, let alone all of humanity. Now, yes, they are banished and their kids become Cain and Abel, and we know how the Cain and Abel story goes. Yet God seems to speak the very opposite to Cain in that moment, that in his anger and sadness, God says, sin is crouching at your door, almost as if sin is outside of him. Sin is out there, Cain, and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Almost as if God is showing him that there is another way to be, that he doesn't need to end up like mom and dad, that he can be different, but just like his parents, Cain does not listen to God. But I'm going to argue that Cain was not a murderer because of his nature. He was a murderer because he chose to kill his brother out of anger and jealousy and bitterness and sadness. Time and time again, we see in the Old Testament this being the recursive and cyclical nature of the story that John mentioned last week. God gives an option, and then the Israelites choose the opposite. And therefore, natural consequences begin to unfold. When we input the fall at the center of the story, it really only helps us to justify and understand the horrific things that we are capable of doing and capable of thinking. But it's a dangerous proposition as it makes the story fully about me, fully about us. Why am I this way? Why do these things happen to me? How come it feels like everyone is out to get me? God must feel distant because I am a sinner. But Genesis 1, 2, and 3 were always about God far more than they were about us. They were about the Creator, about Yahweh and His people, and the covenant between them. The creation story, the entire biblical narrative, is about a God that continues to show up and uphold His end of the deal. He shows up in the garden, and then again when the rain stops and the rainbow can be seen from the decks of the ark. He shows up with Abraham and in the Exodus and in the wilderness and throughout David's shenanigans and through the words of the prophets, and then he literally shows up in the person of Christ. And he shows up on the cross, 
when he's comforting those around him and forgiving others. And then he shows up on the beach and makes breakfast for those who had just abandoned him. And then he's at Pentecost, and now he's with us here. The biblical story isn't about overcoming the problem of our sin nature. It's a relentless love story of God, despite the world's brokenness, who continues to show up, who continues to be with us. My third point, reframing original sin. What if we reframed it? How many people have uh, read and then cried during Where the Red Fern Grows? If you read that book and you don't cry during it, you do not have a human soul, okay? <laughs> Anybody remember how Billy traps the raccoons with his red bone coon hounds? Anybody? Yeah? Digs a hole, puts some nails coming into the hole, and then puts a shiny object in the bottom of the hole. The raccoons come in and they grab whatever's in there, but now they have a fist and so they can't pull their little paw out. And then they just wither to death there <laughs> holding this shiny object. The analogy of holding on to something so tight that it kills us is a pretty good one when thinking about the idea of original sin. The doctrine of original sin was not agreed upon in the Western church until the 4th century, and it's still not dogmatic belief in the Eastern traditions of our faith. Genesis 3, although it does talk about disobedience and deception, does not mention the word sin, nor the idea that our nature as human beings is inexorably linked to it. Jesus, as a Jew, was not uh, raised on the idea of original sin, nor did he ever teach such things. Now, certainly he was unabashed in calling out sin where he saw it. He never pulled punches when speaking to people about it. However, he always seemed generous to call people to a different type of life, instructing them, go and sin no more. If sin was an undeniable part of their nature, why would Jesus make it feel as if people had a choice in the matter? Wouldn't he say something like this? Go and do what you can, but don't worry too much about it because your very nature is detestable and disgusting to me. Jesus never talked to others about their nature as inscrutable, as wicked, as deplorable. Our sin nature theology comes largely from a few instances when Paul addresses it. Romans 5, 12 through 21, and 1 Corinthians 5, 21 through 22, 44, and 49. You guys can write those down if you need to. They're the two primary places that Paul deals with the idea. If we look just at Romans 5, here's what Paul says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Verses 18 to 19. Consequently, just as one trespasses, uh, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. Adam clearly plays a significant theological role for Paul's understanding of God's redemptive action. But remember, 
Paul's theological work is largely a reinterpretation of Jewish thought in light of the resurrection. The center of Paul's message throughout all of his writing is Christ crucified, and therefore his understanding of Adam is fully shaped by Jesus and the work done on the cross. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians are used to show the why of Jesus' death and resurrection. Genesis 3 is a singular point that Paul can use in a historical and cultural language of his recipients would understand to expose the collective problem of sin and death. Paul's use of Adam's life to draw a comparison to that of Jesus' work on the cross in Romans 5 is hardly a fully developed theology of original sin. N.T. Wright, someone far smarter than me, says this, Like an artist in a hurry, Paul paints a few large sweeping strokes on a giant canvas, creating an overall picture without many details. You see, he's not detailing anything about the nature of human beings as much as he's offering a framework to understand the defeat of death and sin as a universal problem. For Paul, Adam is not the cause of sin and death. He is representative of the reality that sin and death are present, that they need to be defeated. Peter Enns says this, the notion of original sin where Adam's disobedience is the cause of the universal state of sin does not find, if any, biblical support. Sin of origin or the sin that affects every human being from the beginning, however, seems to be a veritable undercurrent of the biblical witness. He goes on to say, so even without attributing their cause to Adam, sin and death are with us and we cannot free ourselves from them. They remain the foes vanquished by Christ's death and resurrection. The fact that Paul draws an analogy between Adam and Christ, however, does not mean that we are required to reconsider them as characters of equal historical standing. Unlike Adam, Christ was not a primordial, prehistoric man known only through hundreds and hundreds of years of cultural transmission. The resurrection of Christ was a present reality for Paul, an event that had happened in Jerusalem about 25 years before he wrote Romans. Our doctrine of original sin is a Protestant construct that I do not believe is helpful when trying to understand ourselves in relationship to God and in relationship to others. We are told from the very beginning of the Bible that we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, all over the creation, creatures that move along the ground. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. Yes, Sin is absolutely real. Yes, we all have the capacity to sin. But we are first and foremost image bearers of God. People can be evil, but our nature is not one of evil. Our nature is one that is reminiscent of the original intention in the garden. Knowing ourselves in this way and trusting that Christ sees us as his beloved has the potentiality to change 
everything. It changes how we understand ourselves. It changes how we know that we can be loved by Jesus. Genesis 1 through 3 is an unfolding, ongoing story of beginnings. It tells us about God, how he is the creator, how he formed and filled the world with his goodness, how he breathes life into us and animates our thoughts and our actions, how he has blessed us and invites us to work alongside of him in the creation. But a loving God is only loving if we can choose to love back. Relationship isn't real if it's not fully accepted by both parties. This avails creation to sin because we have the ability to choose something over God. This means we can hurt others. It means we are exposed to pain and disappointment, to violence and deception and bitterness and disobedience. These are the realities that we have all experienced. These are the realities that we have all felt and that we have made others feel at times. But sin is not a problem because of our nature. Our nature is not sinful. Our nature is human. And God created humans in his likeness. And because we are human, we have to acknowledge the reality, the power and the force of sin in the world around, but the greater power of God who continues to show up because God has not given up on his intention, on his creation. God has not given up on us. He's walking around in the cool of the day, calling out, where are you? Let me end with this thought. Jesus didn't die on the cross because you are wretched, because you are deplorable, because you are wicked. He died on the cross because in his image, you were created, and you were deeply loved by him. In his resurrection, sin and death are overcome. We can't return to the garden out of our own accord, not because God doesn't want us to, but because sin has infected the world around, and we've lost our way. We need someone to follow. We need a Jesus to come and show us how to live, how to be, and to make our paths straight. The worship team is going to come back up. We're going to spend the first two songs. You can sing along. You can read the words. You can just be quiet if you need. I know the last five weeks has been a lot of material. For many of us, it's reshaping rebuilding a lot of the ideas that we've grown up with, and that's okay. But let's take the first couple of songs just to be. Be quiet if you need to reflect. Sing if you need to worship. After that second song, John will welcome us to come and take communion this morning. And here's what I would encourage you as you come to the table and you take of the bread and you take of the cup today. Remember that Jesus died on the cross because you are deeply, deeply loved.